0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. "...wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege that we have uh, in this country to be together on a day like this to hear from your word and to celebrate the coming of your son into this world. I pray, Father, that you would come to the preaching of your word and do what you desire to do inside of us. Lord, we ask that you would come and do a work of transformation inside of us, that you would bring healing where there is brokenness and hurt and wounding, that you would bring peace and comfort where there may be anxiety, and brokenness, and fear, we pray that you would come and confront places of our hearts where there is rebellion and sin, and that you would call us to holiness. Most of all, Father, in the midst of all of us, we pray that you would cast a gigantic picture of who Jesus is, and that you would lead us to the foot of the cross, to the doorway of an empty tomb, resting in the promise of heaven. So God, I pray that you would do all of that and then some. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so uh, this uh, passage that we have in front of us today has often been referred to uh, by many as the Christmas story. Uh, Christians um, over the years have, have made a tradition out of reading this story either on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. Um, just in our American history alone, there is um, there's a lot of story um, about Christmas. Um, I was listening as Joe was sharing earlier um, about the time where his family didn't celebrate Christmas one year and how um, regretful that was and how joyful it was to be able to celebrate then the following year, Um, might be something that some of you don't know, that uh, there is a period in our American history uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, where Christmas was outlawed for uh, 22 years. And if you were found celebrating Christmas, you would be fined five shillings. Can you imagine that that's a part of our history? Um, A history that was founded on Judeo-Christian values, uh, so the statement goes. This is a beautiful story, though, um, that we just read. But the reality is that this story that we just read um, was not conceived in an American cultural construct. It just wasn't. Um, Take a look with me first at verses 1 through 5 and look at the cultural context of the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born into a cultural context that was hostile to God. Uh, the Roman Empire um, was no friend to God. Uh, they were no, uh, no friends of God's people either. Um, the Roman Empire uh, was known for its oppression, uh, for its cruelty, and for its social injustice. And that's the culture that Jesus was born into. Now there are some similarities to the culture we live in today for sure. And, and I would pray that the Holy Spirit would help to make those connections for you. But notice that um, Luke explains here that, that the leaders of that empire, the Roman Empire, um, that they're calling for uh, an, an empire-wide registration of every person. That's what Luke sets the context culturally for Jesus' birth. It's an empire-wide registration of every person. Now, the common thought here is uh, that the empire wanted to tax its citizens, right? Um, but the problem is that Rome needed to know whom its citizens were uh, before they could get the job done. You to know who your citizens are if you're going to tax them. Now, um, taxes is a uh, you know a topic that makes most of us fairly uncomfortable, if not outright frustrated and angry Um, but the reality is this taxation uh, it's not necessarily wrong um, even if it does cause a lot of frustration in us it's not necessarily wrong from a biblical standpoint okay there are um, more than enough passages throughout the bible that speak to a form of government that helps to hold people accountable for making a contribution to a thriving and healthy society. But I can assure you, uh, Rome Rome was not the poster child for a biblical form of government. Um, history shows us over and over and over again, if you do the study, that Rome was an oppressive, cruel, and unjust form of government that actually only existed to advance the power and the pleasure of its officials at the expense of its constituents. Now, you might find some connections between that statement and what we experience today at times, um, but that's the reality of the uh, Roman Empire. So, so, so Rome uh, had no respect for God. Rome had no respect for God's ways, and, and Rome had no respect for God's people. Um. But here's the reality: when you look at these first five verses, what you see here is this um, truth shining through that, that 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 existence of that governmental system. Uh, it doesn't stop God from doing what He's always planned to do. Um, th- this this whole thing that's taking place in these first five verses is meant to show us that. That that God works through failed and corrupt forms of government to bring about His purposes for salvation. Rome's uh, registration for taxation campaign—that's what I would call it, but many other I think authors have called it as well. Um, Rome's registration for taxation campaign, man, it all it did was all it did was serve to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. Why? Uh, because it forced Joseph and Mary to take a trip. Now, I imagine the trip would have been a highly frustrating for uh, Joseph and Mary being um, pregnant. Um, and I don't know what the distance was uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but it was a distance for sure for them to travel, and they didn't have the comforts of our travel systems today, so it would have been on foot, so I'm sure that it would have been frustrating for them. But at the end of the day, God used this um, for His own purposes. Um, this whole thing forced Joseph and Mary to make this trip back to Joseph's hometown, and, and uh, so to speak, um, the town of his ancestral heritage. Um, and 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 here's the deal: in in Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, which was the city of David. Um, Um, the the stage gets set for the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies regarding the birthplace of the Messiah. Uh, Not only the birthplace, but also the family bloodlines, the lineage. David's name is mentioned a number of times in this text, and all throughout Old Testament passages, the prophecy pointing to this day all pointed to the lineage of David and a birthplace called Bethlehem. Isaiah is a good place to turn to to find some of these. What you find, what we just read in this, uh, or that we just sang in this song a little bit ago, that all of the hopes and fears of the years were culminating in thee, meaning in Jesus, this birthplace in Bethlehem. It's interesting that we sang two songs about Bethlehem this morning um, to then land on this So this is a fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies taking place. And, And the point of this first section, the point of this cultural context, is as I said before, that God continues His work regardless of the evil institutions or the evil plans of this world. Nothing stops God, nothing hinders God's plans for salvation. Now, as you think about that, look at point number two in verses six through seven. Notice that in this culture, maybe similar to the culture that we live in today once again, but just putting our heads in the culture of the day where this actually happened, notice that the the culture had no room for a Savior. No room for a Savior. I can imagine the the busyness of that uh, city, uh, Bethlehem. Right. I just imagine how busy it was during that season of registration for taxation. Uh, here's the reality: uh, in Bethlehem at this time, it wouldn't have been a festive season at all. Um, I don't think that um, tax season for us is typically all that festive either. Um, but in 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 this culture, uh, it definitely was not. Festive. Okay, there were no Christmas trees with decorations. Uh, That tradition came about uh, much later and could be argued um, that it didn't have Christian roots to begin with. Just depends on which scholar you're looking at. Um, So there wouldn't have been Christmas trees with decorations. I don't think there would have been any family reunions necessarily taking place, except for people were going to their hometowns. So there could be an argument for that, but not like we're doing during our tradition of Christmas celebration. Uh, the stores on Main Street probably would not have been overloaded with customers looking for last-minute gifts. Um, they might have been buying some supplies from, for their travel. Um, but according to, uh, I think, most historical accounts, uh, it, it probably wasn't even December 25th. Now, there's a lot of study you could do there. Um, there are portions of the early church between... Um, the, the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, and, the, uh, and about the 4th century. Uh, in, in those areas, you can find some, some early like church fathers writing, and, and some of them would say that they actually would celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, on March 25th, which they also believed was the day of his death. Um, so they tried to celebrate both on the same day, which was kind of interesting. There's, that's one among a myriad of writings about what did or could have possibly happened in regards to the day that they celebrated the birth of Jesus. So uh, the reality at the end of the day, as muddy as it all is, it just seems to appear that December 25th might not have been the day that Jesus was born. It's possible. Um, there is one early church father, I think his name was Augustine, Pretty sure it was Augustine who swore that it was December 25th. I don't know why or how he knew that. Um, uh, long story short, my point being, um, not certain that it was December when this was happening. Nevertheless, the town of Bethlehem uh, would, it would have been full of people. And they were coming into town not to celebrate the birth of Jesus, they were coming into town to register for the impending. Taxation campaign. Can you imagine the frustration under the surface? Imagine how frustrated the culture was at that time. Frustrated by a ruthless government. Frustrated that there would be no space at the local hotels. Um, that would have been the place that uh, Mary and Joseph would have found themselves in, I think. I mean, I, if you've had a baby... Or if you've known someone who's been pregnant, and you think about the frustration of what it would be like to be nine months pregnant, ready to give birth, and trying to think about a comfortable place to be then find the only place that you could actually stay and give birth to be in a place that uh, fed animals, right? Um, at least it was warm, I think, and dry, um, but it definitely wasn't a five-star hotel or even a one-star hotel for that matter. Um, But at the end of the day, what we learn in this uh, portion here, and we're looking at verses 6 and 7, is just what we've been thinking about all morning already. It's this truth that Jesus, the creator of the universe, think about this, put this mindset on yourself for a minute, uh, the creator of the universe, of the king of kings, Uh, As Andrew said, um, uh, the king comes to be born as a baby in this season to later die for sinners, right? That picture is such a contrasting picture. It's, It's meant to cause some angst inside of you. It's meant to cause some frustration inside of you. Like, it should not be this way. That's what this should cause us. The king of kings, the creator of the universe, The Lord of lords. The Savior of mankind. He gets born into a culture that has no room for a Savior. No room whatsoever. He should have received the welcome of a king. But instead, he was born into obscurity and humility. He came from a comfortable place in heaven to a very uncomfortable place here on earth it's something that for most of us it's hard for us to conceptualize when we think about the idea of church and we think about comfort but could i propose that maybe being a christian and being a part of a church is actually more about our discomfort Really, this whole picture of Jesus coming in obscurity and humility, it's really a, a foreshadowing. It's it's a foretaste. It's kind of like a little appetizer dish right, before you get to the main course, right? It kind of whets your appetite, gets you thinking about what's coming next. This whole picture of Jesus being born into obscurity and humility, it's a foreshadowing of the cross that Jesus is going to bear for the penalty of our sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus would die alone. And He would die humiliated. Why? Why would He die that way? Well, there's lots of great reasons you can give. And the central reason is for our sins, yes. But the reason that He would die alone, the reason that He would die in humility is because of this simple truth. Humanity has no natural room for the Savior in her heart. That's the truth. If you and I are honest with ourselves, the reality is that deep down inside of our hearts, we have no natural room for Jesus. We have room for our selfishness. Those rooms are built up and fortified. But room for Jesus, that takes an act of God to create. This truth it doesn't stop the angels from delivering a message and a song of salvation in the next few verses, though. You look at verses 8-14, through 14, the third point here, as you see the message and the song of the angels. Even though the, the, the culture has no room for Christ, uh, Luke explains that these angels from heaven bring a, a message. And it's a message of good news. Um, It's actually the word gospel um, that Luke uses there. Um, And gospel means good news. And uh, you can't have good news without bad news. There is no good news without frustration. right? Because it's when you feel the frustration of something being broken, being not the way that it should be, that's when something sounds sweet. Uh, For instance, when I'm frustrated because my belly is hungry, And I really want to eat something. And my wife says, Hey babe, can I go get you something to eat? That's really good news. The same thing is happening in this passage. Even though the culture has no room for for Christ, Luke explains that these angels from heaven bring a message, a gospel message of good news. And they bring a song of praise to the shepherds in the fields. Now, The shepherds are an interesting bunch of people. I think you'll find a connection to them just as much as I did. Uh, We often romanticize the picture of the shepherds. Uh, For lots of good reasons. Uh, We think about Jesus as our chief shepherd. Or the good shepherd. (coughs) We think about David, who was a fantastic shepherd. (coughs) But the reality... Uh, is that the shepherds in the scriptures, uh, if you were to go back and just set yourself in that cultural construct, uh, the shepherds there, um, they were, uh, you know, uh, cultural outcasts. That would be the way to say it. Uh, They were like cultural outcasts. Uh, They were historically viewed as a slight step above the lepers in the society. Now, lepers were people who had this... Nasty skin disease, um, and and uh, people would not want to go near them because it was highly contagious. So they were very lonely people, left alone, ostracized. Shepherds were just a step above the lepers, according to most uh, authors and scholars. <coughs> they were historically viewed as um, uh, beggars <coughs> and thieves. Uh, street thugs would be... Um, Another way of saying it. Or you could say homeless wanderers. Um, That's how um, the the scholars would describe this group of people. Now you would expect, I think if you were to think about this, you would expect the announcement of the birth of Christ to be made in the royal courts, right? Of the rich and the famous and the powerful. The king of kings is coming, right? The Lord of Lords is going to be here. We've waited for him forever. This is the man that's going to set us free. You would expect that announcement to be made Fox News or CNN, whichever side you espouse to, right? Um, that's what you would expect. And the message of the gospel is definitely for everyone from every social economic background. <coughs> but the reality of this text was that we learn (coughs) that the announcement of Jesus' coming was first preached in relative obscurity. And it was first preached in relative obscurity to a crowd of homeless wanderers who were considered to be social outcasts. That's who God sends the message to. This is something important for us to, to understand because I think we oftentimes get a view of important messages coming to important people. So it's easy for us to believe, like, I'm not that important. Um, And it's good to have that sense about us in a humble and humilative way, but not in a self-destructive way. Because the reality is that God chose to send His messengers to those of us who flat out do not deserve to hear the message. This message was first preached in obscurity to a crowd of homeless wanderers who were considered to be social outcasts. And the message that the angels preached, the the announcement that they gave, it's as timeless and as true as the Savior it points to. Look at the message that they preach. According to the angels, the gospel is good news of great joy that dispels our fears and gives us peace. Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the the Messiah, the Lord, He was born into obscurity so that sinful outcasts could become sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the message. It's a massive message. This gospel truth, when it it gets a hold of a person, it, it causes the sweetest of praises to come from within. See, what would appears to be the first time in, in all of history in this text, the angelic hosts sing praises on earth amidst creation about its creator, Jesus. I can't imagine what this moment would have been like. Out in the fields. Certainly wasn't a silent night. Certainly wasn't silent. The entire heavens were full of the praises of these angels about the kings of kings. <coughs> the angel's song um, gets right to the heart of the message of the true Gospel. And you notice this line in their song which says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Notice that last phrase. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. There is Tons and tons of scholarly uh, agreement that that final phrase, peace among those with whom He is pleased, that the most literal way of saying it would be to say, peace to those whom God has chosen for His good pleasure. It is one of the... uh, um, one of the clearest examples in the Gospels <coughs> of the doctrine of what it means to be chosen by God, to be elect. That's a fascinating doctrine. To know that God would come and point it to you like you were a lost kid, a left-alone kid at a, uh, in an adoption home and say, I want you, choose you. That's the picture of the doctrine of being chosen, the doctrine of election. And it's clear here. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we bring glory to God through our songs of praise. Why? Why would you bring glory to a God that you could choose? Why? Why? We wouldn't. We would bring glory to ourselves for our choosing. That's what we would do. I decided this day to follow God. I am God. That's ultimately what's taking place. But in the doctrine of election, you find that God, despite all of your mess, comes and puts his hand on you and says, I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter, despite all of your failings and despite all of your mess. What does that cause within you? That's a picture of mercy. That's a picture of grace. I could never choose God had he not chosen me first. This is a verse that reinforces that. We bring glory to God through our songs of praise because He has brought peace to us through Christ. To those whom He has chosen for His good pleasure. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that God would choose an outcast like you to be the object of His pleasure? Can you imagine that for a moment? What that must really be like how does your heart respond to that concept? What, what kind of comfort does that theological truth give you when you recognize that God in His sovereignty and His foreknowledge would come and put His hand on you and point at you and say, I want you. I want you. Therefore, I'm going to send my son to pay the price for you to get you out of the adoption hall of your sin. What about that? What kind of peace would that create inside of you amidst the frustration of this life? What kind of action uh, would this truth getting root in your heart, what kind of action would that begin to produce in your life? What kind of response would this truth elicit in you? That's the fourth thing that we see in our text in verses 15 through 21. You see the response of the people in the passage. In these verses, these final verses, Luke describes the responses of the people in the text to the announcement of the gospel of the birth of Jesus. What happens? Look at the text with me. The shepherds move quickly to run to Jesus, right? And they can't help but to proclaim the good news to anyone who will listen. That's an interesting application point. That when these shepherds recognize that, hey, God would choose me, though I'm an outcast, He would choose me, their response is, I can't not share this with someone. So they move quickly to run to Jesus. They can't help but proclaim the good news to anyone who's going to listen. And the people who hear the preaching of the shepherds, man, they're surprised. They get excited, like what the heck is going on? Right? Why are these crazy outcasts so excited? Something's happening. Mary um, treasures this message in her heart. Uh, she makes room for the message of the gospel. She makes room for her son, the Savior. And she doesn't let a moment slip by that she's not sitting there deeply contemplating. For the shepherds, um, this wasn't just another awesome experience to consume either. you think about that. Uh, they, they left the manger glorifying and praising God continually for all that they had seen and heard. It wasn't like the shepherds sat in the church of, of the manger scene, praising God, and then went back to lives that were full of Sin. They left their praising and glorifying God continually. There's a constancy, a consistency that's taking place in these shepherds' lives because of their experience of the true biblical Christmas. They left the manger glorifying and praising God continually for all that they had seen and heard. And at the end of eight days, Joseph and Mary acted obediently to the previous instructions from the Lord regarding the name of their son. As they followed those instructions, followed the scriptures for circumcision obediently. It's a massive picture of response. Response is something that we think about, that we deeply internalize, that then works its way out into the activities and the actions of our lives. It's called transformation. It's transformation of the way that you think and the way that you feel deep down inside, the things that you long for, and then it's transformation of the way that you now live. That's the whole picture of what we're seeing here. The summary response of this text is simply this. The shepherds run to Jesus. The shepherds proclaim the gospel. People uh, who witness all of this stand in awe of it. Imagine the neighborhood around us standing in complete awe because the message of the gospel is not only on your lips, but it's also on your life in its actions. Imagine that. If our, if our neighborhood, our city, our state, our nation, the world could see Christians living out the Christian message. Imagine the change that could take place. The shepherds proclaim the gospel. The people around them witness all of this and stand in awe. Mary thinks deeply about this. The shepherds continue praising and Joseph and Mary, man, they they get after obedience to God's word. They just get after it. All this happens, why? Because unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The way that Luke couples... The titles for Jesus here, Savior, Christ, Lord, and even the name Jesus. There's so much meaning there that I wish I had time to go into. I just challenge you, do a study of those titles and the way that Luke couples them here. It's absolutely fascinating for our picture of who Jesus is and who the Christmas season is really about. In conclusion, I just want to end by saying uh, this. I, I absolutely love the Christmas season. I love it. I love it for a lot of different reasons. I love all the traditional trappings uh, that our culture has attached to this holiday. Uh, I love the lights. love the trees. I love the gift giving. Um, I love the food. Uh, you all know that. I, I love the family get-togethers. Um, but, but, but even more than all that, I have to tell you that I love Jesus. I really do. I love Jesus. I can't get past this picture that he would come and that he would choose broken, sinful me. I can't I can't get past that picture. I love the opportunity that this season provides for slowing down and soaking in the in the story of the savior who came to this sin-soaked earth to ransom sons and daughters into the family. I grew up in a broken family. Really, really broken. Sometimes Christmas um, brings up some of that again for us, doesn't it? We we talked about that this morning in our prayer time. For all the beauty of this season, this um, season tends to reveal some of our deepest frustrations, doesn't it? Like what frustrates you? Ask that question again. What what frustrates you? I've found myself at times frustrated over the presence of broken families. um, Frustrated over mental illness and frustrated over poverty. Frustrated over physical limitations. Bad health. Worldwide conflict. Homelessness. Natural disaster. One thing that's frustrated me an awful lot lately is all the political unrest in our country, all the division. The impeachment trial thing has frustrated the ever-living Jesus out of me, if that's even a word. Or it's just frustrating. We just live in a frustrating time, don't we? For so many reasons. And we all get frustrated about some of the same things for different reasons. How about that? That's kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> there are a lot of things to be frustrated about in this life. And you... may not naturally uh, read this passage and think uh, frustration. Um, uh, But the reality is that I think all throughout this passage, there's a lot of frustration in and amidst the juxtaposition of the celebration. The reality is that frustration, though, isn't necessarily wrong. Uh, Frustration can be a catalyst for change. Frustrated about something, it shouldn't be this way, it should be that way. Be a catalyst for change. Frustration can reveal what you long for. Uh, it can remind you that this life is temporary, um, which can add more frustration because you realize death is around the corner for all of us at some point. So it can add more frustration, but it can also give you great peace to know this life is not all there is because if this life was all there is it would be pointless right frustration can lead you to the foot of the cross can lead you to the doorway of an empty tomb and it can lead you to set your sights on the hope of heaven simply put if you look at this text frustration can put you in the place of the shepherds you think of the shepherds and how frustrating it would have been to be them working their fingers to the bone day in and day out but still living in that place of being the outcasts of society, and yet the dispelling of that frustration as God comes and reveals himself to them. I spoke about the frustration of the people of Israel living under the uh, rule and the reign of an oppressive government. Well, we live in some of that today. You may not attach the words oppressive to it, but we live as I talked about a minute ago, in a politically unrested system that causes frustration, that we have a part to play in. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God is sovereign over that. There's frustration there, much like Israel. Uh, Mary and Joseph, you, you can probably sense their frustration as they're making this trip. But the reality for all of them is that they heard the sweet words of the gospel that basically says that, Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those words are like a healing balm into all of that frustration. I pray that God would use those words in whatever area of frustration you feel in your life this morning. Because there is a sweet release of praise that happens when you realize that Jesus came into this frustrated world as a humble baby in a manger with no fanfare. And He did this on purpose. This was not by accident. He had your picture in His pocket. He came for you because He chose you before the foundations of the earth were laid. So He did this on purpose so that He could live a a perfect life, a sinless life, and then die and then be resurrected and then leave us what they promise And a hope of His return. Why? So that outcasts like you and I could be called sons and daughters of God with the hope of heaven for all of eternity. Isn't that something to celebrate? I'd celebrate that all day long. I'd celebrate that all day long. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would um, take this word and that you would um, cause a work of transformation inside of us whereby you might reveal to us the frustrations that we walk with and remind us of the truth of the coming of a Savior into this world, into a place filled with frustration so that he might bring peace as the Prince of Peace. And we pray that that kind of peace would fill our hearts and our souls as we look upon the cross where your body was broken and your blood was poured out on our behalf for outcasts like us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com